And now, it's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the special edition Lace Them Up podcast. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We are talking all things Ottawa Senators with the help of a very special guest. If you follow the team, if you live in Canada's capital, you probably know who I'm talking about. Uh, previously hosted Ottawa Senators Overtime on Rogers TV Ottawa Cable 22. If you needed any insight into Ottawa's successes during Sportsnet's early days, he helped spread the word. Made his way to TSN 1200 Ottawa, where he hosted the afternoon show for many years, and then went from radio to print media, where he currently resides today. Ian Mendes of The Athletic, welcome to the Lace Up Podcast. Great to have you, man. Steve Ellsworth, you know, you left out when you're reading off my biography there that when I worked at TSN 1200, I worked in close proximity to you. Oh, you yes. You were always in the, in the newsroom, always eager to talk senators and uh, pick our brains on stuff. So great, great to join your pod. Well, thank you for the slight ego boost. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, in full disclosure, we did work in the same building for uh, many years. Um, I don't yeah. think we delved it too deep into sense contact like we're about to do. So uh, yes. part of the reason why I invited you on the show is because I wanted to pick your brain on the history of the Sens, because I do think it's important when we're talking about where the Sens are at now, uh, the major lows they hit before they got to the gradual rise of the modern-day Senators. But I wanted to just go back to the beginning and talk about what I call the golden era of Sens hockey. It started in 97 when they made that late-season push and made the playoffs, Continued the next year when they stunned New Jersey in the opening round of the playoffs. Then they became a good regular season team. Then in 0-2-0-3, they had that monster wagon of a team that uh, New Jersey Devils forward Jeff Friesen basically ended with one shot. But uh, in uh, post-mortem, was talking about the Sens in the Devils championship video and said, that was probably one of the best playoff teams I've ever faced. And this is a guy that played... In over 900 career games, made eight playoff runs, had gone through several Stanley Cup championships, and was on that 03 Devils team that won it all. And for him to kind of confirm what we all knew, how good that team was, and then to go from that to the pizza line and the 07 finals run, Ottawa had a lot to cheer about in that span. I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts of what you remember during that time. Yeah, it, it, listen, it was a fun time to be around the Ottawa Senators. And look, for me, that was a time where, uh, just to show you how old I am now, that was a time when I was like the same age as the players, right? Like, so, you know, <laughs> you come in and, you know, you could relate to them on a completely different level than than I would with a Stutzel and a Kachuk now. Uh, but back then, you know, you come in with Alfredson and Hosa and Spezza and Chara, and we're all around, you know, roughly – in and around the same age, you know, Spezza was a little bit younger uh, than us, but you know, all those guys are kind of uh, in the same age bracket as you. And uh, you get to know them on a personal level. And I look back and I think one of the big regrets, because I got to know that core uh, with Jacques Martin coaching and with Alfie and with Chris Phillips and Wade Redden and, and Spezza and all those guys. Um, I look back and think, bah, they really deserved the Stanley cup. They, they were good enough. They had the the talent to get over the, the 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 hump a couple of times at least to get to the final in 07 and um, get to the conference finals in, in 03 like you mentioned and it was the glory days like like we didn't go in Steve like back then like we're having a great discussion this year right we we're discussing you know are the senators a playoff team like, can they make it this year can they get over the hump we used to come into training camp every year Steve 
so I'm talking like 02, 03, 05, 06, 07, whatever. You'd come in, and the question wasn't were they going to make the playoffs. The question was, are they a Stanley Cup team? Is this their year? Mm-hmm. That was a pretty exciting time. Like you don't have to think about going to the playoffs. It was automatic. We didn't even we didn't even entertain the thought that they would miss the playoffs. That's why when they basically fell off a cliff in, at the end of 07, 08, it was really jarring because it ended uh, about a decade of, of just consistent, consistent hockey. Yeah, I remember 07, 08 vividly as uh, the year John Paddock was coaching the Eastern Conference in the All-Star Game, and then like within a month and a half later, fired and replaced yep. by Brian Murray mid-year. Uh, and the Sens went into the playoffs that year and got swept by the Penguins, and there were a couple of highs and lows, and uh, that playoff run in 2017 that we'll always remember the pesky sense of 2013 the hamburglar run of 2015 like all that stuff was uh, fine and dandy but um the wheels really fell off uh in 2018 particularly the off season um yeah. and if you're from ottawa you know what happened the hoffman uh carlson uh, significant others feud that was going on there was also the uber video in arizona that came after an awful night from Mike Condon. I think he gave up a goal from center ice in one of his final moments in Sens history after he was a big part of that 2017 team. Without him, I don't think that 2017 run even happens. And then you start to see players leave, like Matt Duchesne, who they acquired and lasted for a hot minute in Ottawa. Uh, but for me, the straw that really broke the camel's back, well, there are two straws. The first straw, we'll talk about Eric Carlson a few days before FanFest 2018 getting traded to San Jose. And uh, TSN 1200s within the hockey community, um, they were probably at FanFest that day. What was the vibe at the CTC? Like, I would imagine it's pretty grim. Boy, uh, you know, when you trade somebody of Eric Carlson's stature, there's no winning that trade. Like, it didn't matter. And even now, like, okay, in hindsight, did Ottawa win the trade by getting Norris and Stutzla? And, you know, that, of course they did. In hindsight, they did. But at the time, you know, Stephen, I, I, I would say that, that you're right. That moment and then later on, the trading of Mark Stone would be the, yeah. the two. I would almost argue Stone was lower, honestly. I would. But that that feeling and that vibe around the Carlson trade, like I think when Carlson got traded, I think I was on the air uh, doing the drive uh, with uh, with Sean Simpson, and uh, it was just after two o'clock, I think, when that trade was finalized. You know, we we kind of said, "Oh my goodness, Carlson's been traded," and I think we left the air at six. I think Lever Sage and Graham Creech came on after, and they ran that thing deep into the night. People were phoning. People were crying. People were saying that they're done with this team. And then yeah, the same, it was the same, it was the Dwayne and Buffalo moment for this franchise. I would argue. Dwayne and Buffalo, exactly. Dwayne and yeah. Buffalo when he lost his, uh, you know, passion for the Sabers. Um, that's what happened here. And and but then I think it was magnified on the Stone trade because I think the feeling on Stone was like if you can't convince that guy to stay, then what are we doing here? Like mm-hmm. the, I I think that's the one. The stone, like I would argue, this as as much as the the Carlson trade you could feel coming for months. Yeah, the Stone trade you always felt like there's they gotta figure this out. They gotta keep this guy. And when they didn't, I think that was the definitive blow for a lot of people to say, "I'm done with you." Um, until something drastic happens here, I 
I can't endorse this. I'm not going to love this team again. And it's taken, I would argue, four years, maybe closer to five, to get people back on board to where they love this team like they did kind of pre-2018. Well, there was also two gut punches that followed that because Mark Stone was on uh, TSN uh, on the TV reacting to the trade, and he mentioned the commitment to winning, and that's why he wanted to go to Vegas. And then it was rumored, like, within hours after the deal was completed, oh, yeah, he's already agreed to an extension, and that it was finalized, like, weeks later. But, and essentially, verbally, they agreed to an extension rather easily, whereas Ottawa had to grind their way just to hear, oh, he's not interested in signing long-term. Well, that sucks. <laughs> now we have to try to get the most of what we can before, you know, we probably lose him for nothing in the offseason. So, well, uh, Steve, I think that. they, if I'm not mistaken, Vegas agreed to a contract extension with Stone in under 30 minutes. <laughs> like, like, Oh, so even worse. Of, okay, great. Yeah, like, because I think the line that I used either in a tsn.ca column or on the air, as I said, just consider that Vegas got Mark Stone and his contract done in less than the amount of time it would take you to order a pizza to your home. <laughs> Think about that. Like, it was it was the truth. And, and it, it showed a level of commitment and belief from the player in the program. I don't think Mark Stone... Like, if, if you're trying to convince Mark Stone to stay today different conversation right like i think he mm-hmm. he sees where this is headed it's it's all headed in the right direction 2018 2019 i don't think you could definitively say that this thing was headed in the right direction under uh, under that leadership ownership so uh, certainly a dark dark day for the the franchise there in in, in february of 20 uh, 2019 uh so let's get to the point where things start to turn around because uh we have a lot to get to um i think the 2020 NHL draft for me when they drafted Tim Stutzla third overall because conveniently the Sharks decided to suck at that time or uh, by fate uh, they happened to suck and Ottawa benefited by getting third overall. They also got uh, Jake Sanderson fifth overall. Uh, later in the first round they got Ridley Gregg who is a promising prospect for them and then the second round they also got guys like Igor Sokolov and uh, Tyler Clevin who could be uh, NHL regulars at some point in their careers. For me, that was the moment where I was like, you know what, things are going to be all right. Uh, was that the moment for you, or was there another moment in between all of that that kind of solidified uh, the positive future that's in store? No, I think it more for me, Steve, would be when the guys started to sign, and whether it, you know, and take your pick. It, it could be Kachuk, it could be Norris, it could be Stutzla, it could be Sanderson. That's the moment for me. And I guess, you know, to some extent, maybe Brady signing. In the fall of 2021, yeah, I think when at that the time, started the ball, yeah, 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 I think at the time there was a lot of sort of, uh, you know, consternation in the marketplace that he's going to take a bridge and they're going to walk him out the door just like they did with Stone or look, his brother signed a bridge, he's going to sign a bridge, and you know when Brady signed a seven year deal, uh, you, you know I think that was a that was a huge win for Ottawa. That was that was the moment where I'm like, okay, well this guy believes in the city and in the program. He's going to tug everybody else along. So probably when Brady signed in the fall of 2021, I was like, okay, there's a commitment here. There's a belief here. And all of the other ones that have happened subsequently, Norris and Sanderson and Stutzla, like I said, all for, you know, seven or eight year terms. It makes you like, that was the biggest issue. I think Ottawa fans are very intelligent and they're very patient. 
But I think what really vexed them from about 2014 to 2018, 2019 in that window, it wasn't just the losing. Fans can understand that that winning is cyclical. You're not going to just be good for 30 years in a row. There's got to be some some highs and lows. We get that. All of us mm-hmm. get that. The inability, though, to hang on to franchise players when you watch in a very tight window of time, Alfredson, Spezza, Carlson, Turis, Stone, Duchesne, you know, you know, Pajot, whoever you want to put on the list of the most popular players for the Ottawa Senators from 2010 to 2020, there's a good chance that they got marched out of town against their will. And that's the point to me where you lose faith and you lose hope. All you want is the feeling of hope. And, and when, when guys, you don't know if they're going to be here for a long term, and a long time, you lose that faith. It starts to evaporate. So to me, getting all of those guys signed, that was the sign that, okay, here we go. Better days might actually be ahead for this franchise. Before we uh, move on to those better days, I do want to look back quickly at Eugene Melnick's legacy as Sens owner. And people in Ottawa probably have mixed feelings, I would say. Complicated is the best term. Because while Eugene Melnick uh, soured a lot of people, got uh, rubbed people the wrong way, um, there was uh, the partnership with John Ruddy of Trinity Developments that went up in flames and then went up in flames again and lawsuits left and right. And then just the fans in general with the hashtag Melnick out billboards that they purchased during the heat of those dark days. Um, they didn't like him towards the end, but in my opinion, like like Eugene Melnick or not, uh, the Ottawa Senators are not the Ottawa Senators, and they're not in Ottawa without Eugene Melnick buying the team. When he bought the team, they were in bankruptcy, and they were struggling to find someone to buy this team. And he did, and he kept the team in Ottawa. Um, You can say, you know, the political capital was burned to nothing. Um, You can question the finances for a, a new arena, if he had the finances. A bunch of things about Eugene Melnick um, rub people the wrong way. But, in my opinion, the Ottawa Senators are not here without him. How would you describe his legacy, Ian? Uh, it's complicated, and it's mixed, and it's okay. You know, I think human beings are inherently complex people uh, and creatures. Mm-hmm. Y- you don't have to be all good. You don't have to be all bad. There could be good elements to you, bad elements to you, and you may end up falling somewhere in between. So I think two things could be true. I think... Uh, thing one can be that that absolutely Eugene Melnick played a part in saving uh, the Ottawa Senators in, in 2003 and keeping them here today would never have happened if it not for his ownership of the team. But in saying that, you can also argue that, uh, you know, a lot of the relationships, uh, whether it was with the Daniel Offertsons and the serial leaders and mm-hmm. the, you know, the, 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 the faces of the franchise, whether it was with business partners like the John Ruddies, as you mentioned, whether it was with politicians and his infamous battles with Jim Watson, yep. whether it was with the, the charitable sector and they broke ties with the, uh, the the Sense Foundation. Which, how many times has that happened uh, where a charitable organization it, splits from the team entirely? It's never. Yeah. It's never happened. And, you know, relationships with the media, ev- everything was detonated. Mm-hmm. And there was a combustible component to him that, um, unfortunately left a lot of, uh, like I said, the severed relationships and, and they've got to rebuild those back. And so, yeah, like, does he deserve credit for keeping the team in Ottawa? Like, of course he does. Like, like you'd be silly 
not to look at that angle. But but what people don't do enough of is take a real hard critical look at a totality of an ownership or a totality of of somebody's life. Like it's okay. Like just because somebody was good in one aspect of their life doesn't mean that that they weren't bad in a, another aspect and vice versa. And it's okay. You don't have to be all good. You'd be you know or you're not necessarily all bad. I think he's one of the most um fascinating people because I do think there was part of him that had a very big heart and he was giving and mm-hmm. he did care. But there was another side of him that was vindictive. It was uh, at times, I believe our reporting uh, was able to, to ascertain that he was homophobic, that he was misogynistic, that he was, uh, you know, some of these attributes that you don't want in a human being. And he had them. And yet at the same time, he was very willing to help people in need at certain points. Or you talk to certain people, um, that that had a great relationship with Eugene Melnick and, and he helped them out of various situations. Both like what people just need to understand is two things can be true. You can have good characteristics and qualities that kept a hockey team in town and you had some, uh, you know, charitable aspects to you. But at the same time, you also severed a lot of relationships, detonated a lot of relationships and acted in a, in a toxic manner. Like both those things can absolutely be true. And I think that's why we wrestle with, the legacy of him in Ottawa because it's not cut and dried. It's not an easy close the book on the Eugene Melnick era. It's uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. Now, obviously, the Eugene Melnick era ended because, unfortunately, he passed away and uh, may his soul rest in peace. And uh, obviously, that puts uh, Anna and Olivia Melnick, his daughters, in a pretty tough spot because um, – you know, they're just uh, starting to get out of post-secondary life uh, and trying to start their own careers. Uh, they weren't expected to run a hockey team a couple of years ago, and here they are uh, running a hockey team uh, with the help of the estate uh, during the 2022 offseason. And it was around this time last year, word got out, the team was going to be up for sale and a new majority owner was going to be needed to take the reins. And that's when we first heard of Ryan Reynolds joining a Remington group and showing interest in purchasing the Ottawa Senators. Uh, Ryan Reynolds having Ottawa ties uh, himself and being the mega celebrity that he is, a lot of people were fixated towards him as the season went on last year. He was spotted at a couple of Sens games and everyone's going gaga. It's like, oh my God, Ryan Reynolds is here. Take that, Taylor Swift. Um, There was also The weekend who uh, got in on one of the bids. Uh, Snoop Dogg, the American rapper, uh, joining uh, American entrepreneur Nico Sparks. So there was a lot of fanfare, a lot of publicity uh, heading into this whole ownership ordeal. Uh, You also had, um, I'm going to butcher this name, I apologize, Steve Apostopoulos. Do I I have his name? Apostolopoulos. I was close enough. I'll take that. There you go. Um, He tried to buy the NFL's Washington Commanders for a lot of money in the billions uh, unfortunately failed in that pursuit, but he was also interested in buying the team. And then, of course, you have uh, Michael Andlauer, who is the current owner of the Ottawa Senators, who had a minority stake in the Montreal Canadiens, was uh, the owner of the OHL's Hamilton Bulldogs, currently playing in Brantford because their uh, arena is being renovated in Hamilton right now. And um, as the process dragged on and uh, the buzz around the whole process was that uh, – Things were kind of getting a little bit hairy, and uh, the big players uh, started to bow out. Uh, Remington Group and Ryan Reynolds being the first. 
Was it a foregone conclusion, in your opinion, that Ann Lauer was the guy, even with all these big names in play? No, I think that would be, uh, you know, probably being a little, uh, looking back, I think, unfairly at the process. If, if I sat here and told you in January that I knew for sure Ann Lauer was going to be the owner, I think I'd be lying to you. I think it did feel like there was a window of time where, where Ryan Reynolds and Remington – if, certainly we're getting most exposure, but certainly felt like, wow, they're, they're going to come in here with an aggressive bid and they're going to, they're, they really want this. And Ryan Reynolds has come to two senators games. Like he, he looked like he was serious. He, he wasn't in this for show. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest here. He didn't, that guy doesn't need publicity, right? Like he doesn't show up to a game so that he be legitimately, you can see his passion for Wrexham. You can see his passion for, for being a sport sports owner. And um, so I, I think, there was a time where they looked real serious uh, for sure. Uh, but, but at the end, like, I do think that the NHL, if you, if you gave them truth serum at the start of the process back in November, <laughs> I suspect before any of this stuff with Reynolds and Snoop and the weekend and Apostolopoulos and all that, they would have probably, if you injected Gary Bettman and Bill Daly with truth serum and said, who's the guy you want to own the Ottawa Senators? I think they would come back and say, Mike Andlauer. That's what I think. I, I think, you, you know, he checks a lot of boxes for them. Yeah, they Starting know the guy. The fact, he's a known entity. He's been a minority owner of the Habs. He's been to Board of Governors meetings. He's sat on uh, different uh, boards with the Habs that uh, have helped hire uh, Kent Hughes and, and Jeff Gorton and all that. Like, he knows the game. Know him. And and I think I think the, the, the biggest question was, okay, Michael Landlauer looks at the Senators, and I I think – if I had to guess on this, Steve, I, I think when Michael Anlauer first came in with the Senators I, I to buy the team, I don't think he thought they were worth more than maybe seven seventy five, eight hundred million. I don't think so. That's my that's my super educated guess. The and the and selling think, price, by the way, uh, for those of you who don't know, was nine hundred and fifty million. They were trying to get like close to a billion for it. Yeah, and so I think what happened was in part of this negotiation or sale process price just kept going up and up and up. And then, uh, you know, at the end of the day, and was left as the last guy standing. But I, I think he probably, if again, if, if we had truth serum, you gave it to Ann Lauer and you asked him, what do you think they're really worth? I think the number would come back closer to 800, but sometimes you got to overpay for things. If, if that's what the market says it's worth, then that's what it's worth. And so it was a pretty aggressive and robust bidding process it was competitive it wasn't just mike andlauer there was the kimmel group there was remington there was nico sparks apostolopoulos uh graham rooston who owns the hockey news at one point was kicking around mm-hmm. so you know whether or not people want to say that that was artificially inflated just to get the number up i guess we'll never know that but i don't think the league ever wanted to sell this team for 750 million i think they they were eyeing that number north of 850, 900, and, and at the end of the day, they got it at 950. Yeah, and uh, then we get to hear from Michael Ann Lauer, the person, um, because a few weeks ago, he was finally introduced as Sen's owner. Everything was signed, sealed, and delivered, and uh, he has a lot of key local owners, um, uh, business partners, I should say, at play. Uh, Jeff York of uh, Farm Boy, a big local grocery chain here, uh, the Maholtra family, uh, Claridge Homes, real estate, that's a 
in my opinion, a huge get for Ann Lauer to have them in the in the picture. Uh, he also has a couple of OHL team owners in the mix. Um, there are a couple of people that I'm sure I'm missing, but um, just to name a few, those are the names that stick out to me. And um, I was just like, okay, well, what's he like as a person? And I tell you, Ian, I couldn't stop smiling during the entire press conference. Um, I heard that he was highly regarded and beloved in Hamilton by everyone from the play-by-play guys to the players, the trainers, the coaches, the fans. Everyone loved him over there. And right from the hop, he was hitting all the right notes. It was an orchestral piece. Absolute grand slam of a home run. Uh, give us the 411 on Ann Lauer, the person and the owner of the Sens, as you were listening to him uh, address the fans on that day. Yeah, it, it, look, I, I, I think he hit that thing out of the park. And I over the years, and it's not just Eugene Melnick, I've, I've, I've come across a lot of other owners in the NHL covering board governors meetings, league events, cup finals, whatever. And Michael Ann Lauer comes across in a completely different way. And I think most billionaires or people that accrue that type of wealth, Steve, um, they end up doing so by being uh, vindictive, by being aggressive, by being selfish. And that's, and that's fine. That's business, right? That's, you don't get to be a billionaire by being a nice person. Usually Mike Andlauer seems like the one exception of, okay, maybe, I mean, maybe in the corporate boardroom, this guy's ruthless. I can't speak to that. What I can speak to in my handful of interactions with him now, couple in person, sometimes on the phone, whatever, is extremely polite and super down to earth. Like, super down to earth. Like, to the point where you're like, what? what is going on here? Like, this guy, there's no way this guy has a uh, billion dollars in assets. No way. Because he's too normal. And 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 I got to tell you, I think he he's legit. I think he's genuine. I just think he's a a regular guy who happens to have a billion dollars and plus to his name, who loves hockey, who loves being an owner, and I think we're going to see that. So I think you know I don't know how much you're going to hear from him though. To be honest, Steve, like like I know he's. he's I hope not much because uh, when we heard from uh, Melnick at times, it was just like ah, please turn the microphone off. I don't want to hear this anymore. Yeah. No, no, exactly. And so different situation here. Like, I, I, I don't know how often. Maybe we'll hear from him a couple times a season or whatever. But I don't think he's the type of guy. His personality doesn't seem to be the type of person who will, like, kind of have this sort of uh, bombastic, uh, aggressive, amazing soundbite that we used to sometimes hear in this market. I, I think he's measured. I think he's calm. I think he's he's very articulate. He's very meticulous. Um, and I, I just think, look, I would have loved to have seen Ryan. Look, I'm not going to pull any punches. I would have loved to have seen Ryan Reynolds here. I would have loved to have seen Snoop here. I, I would like, love to see a Deadpool jersey. All, Deadpool yeah, altered. That, that's that's all I want. And a yeah, YouTube that series. stuff is pretty cool. I'm not going to yeah. lie. It's a nice perk. But um, if we're being real truthful here, uh, Michael Anlauer's personality is perfect for this market. It's almost yeah. like he personifies Ottawa in that he is a pretty fun guy, but it's, 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 it, it may be a little bit hidden right under an exterior of quiet and professionalism. There's a lot of fun to him. And, and, and I think that's us as a city, right? Like we, we get labeled as 
being too serious or whatever. But I, I think yep. if you look hard enough, it's a fun city. I, I think that's Michael Ann Lauer as, as a as a person. Yeah, they label as the city that fun forgot. And Michael yeah. Ann Lauer has already bought a property here, and he's mentioned how much he loves Ottawa. And this is a guy that's uh, lived in Montreal for most of his life. So take that for what it's worth, Sens fans, I guess. He's already made uh, some changes to the front office, as Ian yes. Mendes, you would know. Uh, Ian Mendes of The Athletic joining us, by the way. Sean Tierney, Director of Hockey Services at Sport Logic, uh, Big guy in analytics, ties to the Bulldogs franchise, knows Michael Ann Lauer. Uh, he joins uh, the Ottawa Senators. Cyril Leader, we mentioned uh, his departure. Not anymore. He's back as team president. Daniel Alfredson isn't back yet, I would imagine. Any day now, he probably joins. And then uh, the biggest hire to date is uh, Steve Steos with Hamilton Ties. Uh, joining the sense as president of hockey operations. Um, what are your thoughts on these additions and what ingredients are the sense missing slash maybe should add? Uh, look, I, I think Cyril leader is a great hire in that. I talked about some of those previous relationships with the charitable sector, the political sector, the business sector that have been, you know, detonated, severed, cut, whatever you want to say. Uh, Cyril is about as well connected as anybody in the city, he'll be able to reestablish those bonds. That's huge. When, when you're a city like Ottawa and you don't have a huge corporate, uh, you know, community, you can't start losing sponsors. And Ottawa was lo- the Senators were losing sponsors left, right, and center because of the direction of of, of the previous regime. So getting Cy back is huge. I would expect. Uh, that that'll trickle down to the marketing and, and sponsorship side of things. Uh, Steve Stales is really interesting to me. I, I really enjoyed listening to him speak. I've spoken to a lot of people who know him and they're like, look, Steve Stales as a player was like a stay at home, very kind of uh, meat and potatoes type of defenseman. Steve Stales as a, an executive looks at the game completely differently, embraces analytics, embraces uh, creative ideas embraces uh, more voices, likes the idea of puck possession. Like, like you would think that a stay-at-home defenseman would be like, let's build a team full of, you know, kind of grit and toughness. And it's like, that's not what he wants to do at all. Like, he he wants to build a fun, fast, exciting, competitive team that is entertaining and and, and wins on a, on a regular basis. So I think this guy's going to be a real good hire. I, I, I don't know him at all. Like, just covered him a little bit in his time as a, as a player, but you know, no relationship there. Just interviewed him at the press conference. I'm really, uh, my interest in, is peaked on him. Cause I, I think there's a, a level of intelligence there that I don't know that we quite understand yet. And I'm excited to get to know it. Cause I, I think he's a smart guy. And so, um, I, I think that's going to be good. And as you mentioned at some point, and I don't, I don't know if it's imminent. I don't know if it's within days. Uh, I don't know if it's this calendar year. But I do feel like at some point, Daniel Alfredson will come back. And, and I think he's had good conversations with Ann Lauer. And, and I think in, in trying to read the tea leaves a little bit, I think his philosophies would mesh pretty well with what I laid out with Steve Stales. So I think there's going to be a spot for him. It's just a question of what's the title, what's the role, what's it look like. Um, but yeah, that that's going to be an exciting day, I think, for people in Ottawa. Mark my words, opening night, Alfie's going to come out and drop the puck again, and then they're going to drop the bombshell that he's back, and the crowd's going to go nuts. It's the perfect Oof. ploy. Get the home crowd on your side. Get opening night fired up the right way. 
it worked against Boston last year. So that's right. Uh, just, that was just, a wild. That was a wild opener. Yeah, there's one idea uh, for the new Suns management. Uh, now, uh, management ownership is going to have a big decision coming up. The future location of the Ottawa Senators, whether it's Ann Lauer yes. or Snoop Dogg or Ryan Reynolds and the uh, partners they represent, this was going to be priority number one for the new owner. Um, it's been a topic of discussion during Melnick's final years. Uh, the LeBreton deal that uh, was killed off has been revived. However, the clock is ticking uh, to negotiate. In my opinion, I am a Canada resident, and I live 10 minutes away from the rink. Uh, minus the game day traffic, it's 10 minutes. And I like where they are from a convenience sake, but in order to get all areas of Ottawa, so we're talking Gatineau, we're talking Rockland, we're talking Orleans, it needs to be in a more centralized location and closer to downtown Ottawa or downtown Ottawa is where they are best suited, in my opinion. Uh, but uh, as we're getting uh, down to it, uh, as we get into the next couple of years, um, the question is, what's the ideal fit? What's the best arena design here in Ottawa? So I pose that question to you, Ian Mendez. Uh, what do you think is the best arena in Ottawa? And keep in mind, public transit uh, has been a problem in Ottawa, just getting to the rink in Canada. And with uh, the light rail transit shenanigans, uh, it's it, unless that's uh, solved, um, that's going to be a problem wherever they put the sends close to downtown. If they do that, yeah. My look, my number one pick would be, and I know this has been floated out there, uh, would be the the site where the, the the Department of National Defense is basically right behind the Shaw Center, behind the Rideau Center, mm. next to the canal. Uh, the footprint I know is big enough. I, I hear people tell me it's not big enough to put an arena. I'm I'm telling you, it's big enough to put an NHL arena there. Like I I know that in speaking to people who are very well connected in the real estate construction uh, industry, that's big enough footprint. Uh, the issue there is D and D told me that they're planning to occupy that building at least until 2035. Now, is there room for negotiation there? The answer is absolutely yes, there is, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I think what you don't want to do if you're Michael Landlauer or you're the mayor, Mark Sutcliffe, or whoever you are, if you're an interested party here, you don't want to just agree to building an arena now, say, you know what, we got the, the, the permit to go ahead at LeBreton, let's go before we get any more red tape. You don't want to do that. And then all of a sudden, two or three years later, you realize, ah, dang, we should have put it in this location if only we had just waited. And so... We've waited this long. We can wait another year or two. That, that that's my feeling, and and my feeling is I'd love to see it at D and D, but I'm also open to LeBreton. Like I I think what I I don't like sometimes, Steve, is that when we have this conversation, people say, you know, if if you like it at D and D, that means you hate LeBreton, or if you like it at LeBreton, that means you hate D and D. And it's like, again, two things can be true. I think both of them are great sites. I'm happy we're like. I'm also happy if they if we find out, look, it's never going to work out. They're never going to build. They're going to stay in Canada in perpetuity. Guess what? I'm okay with that too because it still means we have NHL hockey in our backyard. <laughs> I, I don't love the idea, but I'm at the point where I, I, I don't want to manufacture fake outrage. Um, I'd like to see it downtown. I think for the good of the people in the East End in particular and in the people in Gatineau, 
I think it needs to be downtown. I, I think it would be really tough to take one of those bridges over every night and, and get caught in traffic and be on the parkway or be on the Queensway or come in from the East end 30 times a year. If you have a, you know, partial season tickets or full season tickets, we got to make it easier. And the ideal way is putting it downtown and whether down like downtown to me does mean La Breton and it does mean D and D and it does mean, you know, all these anywhere there is good with me. I want to make that clear. Anywhere there is good with me. The thing about downtown Ottawa is, you know, parking is hard to come by, which, again, I mentioned, wherever you put a public transit and public transit accessibility is going to be that X factor that has to be included. Uh, Now that uh, we've talked about uh, the the behind-the-scenes stuff that's very important to the success of this team, in terms of branding, and we kind of talked about it when we were talking about Ryan Reynolds and the YouTube series he was making with Wrexham FC to kind of expand their popularity. And I look at the Canadian Tire Center. It's being invaded by Leafs fans every night, uh, every time Toronto comes to town. The same thing when Montreal comes to town, and it's red, white, and blue, Habs jerseys everywhere. Uh, They don't have a big following in America compared to American teams on a global scale. As a fan, I kind of hate that. I would rather uh, my team be more popular globally, not just locally, even though locally is the most important thing. And while the Hartford Whalers no longer exist as a team, they have a memorable logo and they have the Brass Bonanza, which has lived out the team as a whole. And their uh, current location, the Carolina Hurricanes, uh, came up with the Storm Surge, those bunch of jerks t-shirts, and they've kind of grown a branding with that. Uh, You look at uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, who have only been in the league for six years, have already won a Stanley Cup. How nice. Uh, they have a theatrical pregame show that is aimed to entertain fans, and it does entertain. Uh, maybe it's a catchy slogan, a popular chant, a catchy song. What do you think Ottawa can do to stand out, this hockey team? Boy, from a, from a marketing perspective, I like, you know, Mike Anlauer, Michael Anlauer talked about this. I know others have talked about this. Ryan Reynolds had mentioned this, that the identity of this town is we're not Toronto and we're not Montreal. And I kind of like that. I think embrace that like embrace the the kind of the anti original six like like embrace the youthfulness of this franchise and and i know we're 30 plus years old of of having an nhl uh, team but still that's relatively young compared to montreal and toronto have had teams for 100 years um, so embrace it embrace like you know toronto and auto and montreal fans like to talk about history and they like to talk about all of that stuff well that's great but you know what also comes with history is expectations and ghosts and things that we don't have to deal with in Ottawa, right? Like we don't, we don't have a a 50 plus year Stanley cup drought. We don't have these, uh, you know, fictitious ghosts skating around saying you better win the cup or else we don't have that. And and we can have a little bit more fun. I think there's a little bit more leeway in Ottawa to be a fun franchise. The Toronto Maple Leafs and the Montreal Canadiens, they can't sell fun, right? You can't, you're an original six team, you're Boston, New York, you know, those teams, uh, you can't sell fun, but you can when you're a newer team. I think Ottawa should lean into it. Have some fun. Yeah, we're not the Habs, we're not the Leafs, is what I would say if I if I work there. And that's a good thing. And and I think if they can kind of latch onto that and and I think connect with the younger fans, um, boy, boy, this this is just setting up so perfectly to be going in the right direction here. Alex Debrinkit. Um, they tried it for a year. It didn't work out. He's now in Detroit, signed to a four-year deal. 
They got Dominic Kubalik prospect defenseman Donovan Sabrango and a couple of other future assets uh, in return for Debrinkit. Uh, in my opinion, that is a 10 out of 10 trade that you 100% do again because it sets the message that we're ready to win now. Do you feel the same way as I do? Yeah, I think so. I think, look, hindsight is always twenty twenty. So I can't sit here and tell you, ah, they should never have traded for Debrinkit. Like, because it injected the fan base with a ton of optimism and enthusiasm going into the 22-23 season. So, look, it, but it was a gamble. It was a risk. You were trading for a guy with two years left of team control, and he absolutely positively could have walked. The, the one thing I'll say is this. Uh, you know, Ottawa couldn't, hasn't been able to, as, as of this recording, sign Shane Pinto. Imagine them with Debrinket on the books. That's all I'm going to say. Like, yeah. So The good news is they have Jake Sanderson on the books because uh, he got paid and he signed long-term. Eight years times $8.05 million per year. Had to add the .05 in there. Um, getting a bit more money than Thomas Shabbat had one fantastic season as a rookie. And in my opinion, that was the biggest surprise of last year, just how NHL ready he was. Uh, didn't look out of place at all during training camp. Common composed in the preseason. Continued into the regular season. I think there were only two defensemen in the entire league, in the entire league, with more shorthanded minutes than Jake Sanderson. Half of his production was on the power play. He finished top 10 in Calder voting and is already a reliable top four defender on this team. Now, I know hockey fans are going to say, eh, it was one good year. You shouldn't pay him all that money right away. They were betting on upside with Tim Stutzla. They were betting on upside with Josh Norris. Um, Josh Norris and how he reacts to uh, his latest string of injuries, that's to be determined. Tim Stutzla erupted for 90 points shortly after signing that big contract. And I think if you're the sense, it's a risk we're taking, giving Jake Sanderson this amount of money right now, especially when the market resets, when Quinn Hughes gets paid in a couple of years, when Kale McCarr gets paid in a few years. Um, do you like the deal and the timing of the deal? Yeah, and, and it puts pressure on uh, Owen Power and Moritz Sider, right? Like two two comparable guys in Detroit and Buffalo that are in that same same bucket as Jake Sanderson. And I love it. I, I, I think in three years from now, there'll be an argument to be made. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but there'll be an argument to be made that Jake Sanderson is the most important player for Ottawa. Because by that point, I'm thinking he's probably logging the most ice time of any skater He's probably doing power play and penalty kill. He's probably, like at that point, you can make the argument if he projects out the way you think he did or will, um, and he hits the ceiling, then you're laughing. You're laughing if you're Ottawa. So I love it. I love the gamble. I would rather like if if, if look. Let's put it this way: if they if this turns out to be that they've overpaid Jake Sanderson, it's probably because we're like ah, you know what? Maybe he's like a six and a half, seven million dollar guy. At no point. Steve, are we going to be having a conversation that, oh, man, they're paying Jake Sanderson $5 million too much. I, I, that's not going to happen. Like he's, he's that good. So I'd rather, if you can bet on guys, bet on them now coming out of entry level, lock them up. It's a gamble, but most of the time it's a gamble worth taking. Where you, go into, where you get into trouble is when you hand out these eight-year deals to guys who are 27, 28. Those are the deals that don't age well. Get a guy though when he's when he's twenty two, twenty three, and sign him for eight years. It's almost an it's almost a can't miss for me. Jacob Chikrin is the X factor of the Ottawa Senators this season. Yes or no, and why? 
I'll say no because I think the X factor is goaltending. I think if this team has healthy goaltending from uh, Corpusella and Forsberg, that's the quote-unquote X factor for me. But I like Chikrin. I like him a lot. And I think for the first time in the DJ Smith era, he's got top four legitimate D at his disposal. You know, prior to last year, you know, he didn't have Chikrin. He didn't have Sanderson, right? And so, you know, you were seeing Josh Brown and Nikita Zaitsev and some of these defensemen that probably shouldn't have, couldn't have been playing top four, top six minutes playing. We shouldn't have that this year. I love Chikrin. Um, I think he's a, just a perfect fit in the top four. Um, and, and I like him with Shabbat, but I, X factor for me is the goaltending. The fact that we have so many talented defensemen uh, to the point where a former first rounder, Lassie Thompson gets claimed by the Anaheim Ducks off waivers. Uh, and you also have Eric Branstrom in the mix and who knows where he fits in and Hamannick on a two-year deal with a full no move for both years kind of shows you how limited spots there are just to be on Ottawa's blue line. Whereas a couple of years ago, uh, we were talking about how much cap space they had going into the year, which is again, a testament to uh, how good uh, Ottawa has become. And you got guys like Jonas Corposalo coming off of a, you know, a pretty good LA Kings team that just got Pierre-Luc Dubois could have stayed with them, but chose to come here instead. And on a five-year deal, no less. And Vladimir Tarasenko also coming in here with all of the notable superstars leaving Canada in recent years. I think it kind of says a lot to what Ottawa is building. Um, true or false, the Ottawa Senators have a scoring efficiency problem, not a scoring problem. Um, boy, I, that's a good question. I I think if, if Norris comes back and he's healthy and Tarasenko does what he does and Kubalik plays the way he could... I don't think there's going to be a score. Like, that's not the, like, I, I don't have a, uh, scoring efficiency is probably a interesting way of phrasing it. I think the power play should be one of the best six or seven in the league. It's can they score five on five? And, and I think if Norris comes back and he's healthy, and if Pinto's back there um, to start the season with Kubalik and whatever, I think you've got three potentially balanced lines that can, that can do some damage. So I, I don't think goal scoring is going to be a problem for them, but this is predicated on Norris being good, Tarasenko bouncing back to the 34-35 goal version he was of himself uh, two years ago, and Kubalik being uh, being a 20-goal guy too. DJ Smith is heading into his fifth year as Sens coach. Uh, since we saw the firing of Jacques Martin in 2004, almost 20 years ago, I might add, here's the list of Sens coaches since 04. Brian Murray, John Paddock, Brian Murray after John Paddock was fired mid-season, Craig Hartsburg only lasted like half a year, Corey Clouston, Paul McLean, Dave Cameron, Guy Boucher, Mark Crawford, who replaced Boucher mid-season when he was fired, and now DJ Smith. None of those names, not named DJ Smith, made it through four complete seasons. Uh, Some are glad that DJ is still in the fold, in my opinion. Uh, I think while he still has a lot to prove, I like what he's done with this group. What does he have to do to make the Sens better and get to get them ultimately to that next level of being a team that can make the playoffs every year? Well, they got to get out of the gate fast. And yeah, that's been unfortunately the hallmark for October, them. November, uh, right there. Yeah, they, they've they've stumbled out of the gate, and they they play hard for the coach, they try for the coach, but they haven't won for the coach in the beginning of the season. That has to change. Like that, there's no. Well, maybe get, there's none. There's no more. And and I think he understands that. Like, and I think DJ is 
very acutely aware of the pressure on him this year. I think he's trying to embrace it a little bit. I think he's trying to understand that he's got a shot to turn it around. But really, it's about the defensive zone for this team. It's it's not about goal scoring. Like I said, goal scoring is not a problem. It's can they keep the puck out of their net? Can they play uh, defensively in a in a manner that looks controlled and looks uh, clean? with exits. Uh, but again, this is the first time he's got legitimate top four. It, he should have legitimate goaltending. He hasn't had some of those things. I'm willing to give him a couple of passes on some things, uh, you know, personnel wise or player wise, but not anymore. Like this is it. Like this is the time where we're going to have to see whether or not he can, he can coach this team to the next level. Yeah. And I mean, uh, to be fair, there was um, the uh, pandemic shortened 2021 season where Ottawa got off to, a horrible start, and everything was out of flux. They hadn't played hockey in a year. Uh, the next year, they uh, started off rather slow. Then a COVID outbreak hit just as they were starting to get going. Then they got going again. Then the whole league shut down because the whole league had a COVID outbreak, and they were kind of back to square one for a little bit. And while they were better in the second half, their struggles in the first half um, kind of set them back. And then last year, October and November, set them back again, and that ultimately was the difference. Uh, which brings us to the playoff conversation. Uh, I didn't take too many photos of the 2017 playoff run on my cell phone. I have been dying to capture the next wave of playoff memories on my current phone, which I purchased in July of 2018. It's been five years. I'm still waiting. And a lot of fans are hungry for a playoff run. Uh, and you look at their schedule for the first two months from October 11th, their home opener, or, or their regular season opener against Carolina, rather. And uh, the end of November, uh, they have two back-to-backs, and one of them is at home. That's uh, on opening weekend, hosting Philly Saturday afternoon, and then I think hosting Tampa um, the next night. Um, the fact that uh, they have a lot of days off, a lot of time to rest and recoup in between games, uh, and the fact that they were a significantly better team at home than on the road, and... Also, Andre Vasilevsky of the Tampa Bay Lightning, in case you haven't heard, out 8 to 10 weeks recovering from back surgery, which could be a lingering problem if that uh, doesn't go well and he doesn't have a full recovery. Of course, I am wishing the best for Vasilevsky, but Tampa Bay is going to be a thorn in a lot of teams' sides, and they're without their number one goalie for a significant period of time for the first time in what seems like years. Um, So you talk about a window of opportunity, and the window of opportunity is now. Do you see playoffs this year for the Ottawa Senators? Uh, I do, uh, but a lot of it is predicated. Pittsburgh thinks they're a playoff team this year. Buffalo thinks they're a playoff team this year. Uh, You know, and they both missed last year. Uh, So there's at least a dozen teams. Detroit's probably thinking they're ready to play. There's 12 teams for eight spots. Ottawa certainly put themselves into that conversation. And I think if the playoff cutoff is 95 points, they should be right there. But I can't sit here and definitively tell you they're a playoff team. I can't, but they should be. They should be going into the season thinking that they're good enough to be a playoff team. But some of it's going to be out of their control. They're in a tough division with Boston and Tampa and Toronto and Florida, who have been perennial playoff teams the last few years. The Devils and the Hurricanes, I think, are locked in. The Rangers are pretty good. Like, that's seven teams right there. Um, there might only be one spot up for grabs. And if it is the Islanders who step out, there's Pittsburgh. There's Buffalo. There's there's Ottawa. There's Detroit. So, a lot of this, unfortunately, is uh, is is out of their control. Ian Mendez, very gracious with his time, but we have to end the conversation there.
Ian Mendez, you can find him on The Athletic. Uh, worth the subscription any day of the week. That does it for this special edition of the Lisa Mutt Podcast. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We'll talk again soon.